are going to get into God's word this morning. Going to give the guys just a moment to bring it up on the screen to make sure that the sound and hit the record button. I don't know why you'd ever want to listen to this again, but it's just me. Let's pray for the word. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, God, for this day. Thank you for the special time it is. Thank you, Lord God, that we've journeyed through the service to this point. Thank you that you've been with us and thank you that your spirit fills us this morning. Lord God, with love and hope and peace and joy, we thank you for all of those things that are in us uh, through our faith in Jesus Christ. Let's come to your word again. Lord, breathe a fresh breath of spiritual energy into your word today. I pray it in Jesus' name. And everyone says, amen. Amen. Hey, it's week four, week four of an eight-week summer series that we have been doing. It's entitled The Quest. And The Quest comes to us from Ecclesiastes to discover what life means. And the quest we are on this morning is the quest for integrity. We're going to look this morning at Ecclesiastes chapter 5. If you want to go there in your Bibles, that'd be great. If not, of course, it'll appear on the screen behind me. Let me begin by telling you about a, a guy, young man, first job out of school. Wanted to make a good impression. First thing in the morning, the phone rang. He answered it politely as he was supposed to do. And then he handed it to the boss and said, Boss, it's so-and-so for you. The boss rather sheepishly said, Shh, tell them I'm not here. Make up some sort of excuse. The young man looked at him and said, Here, tell him yourself. A boss hit the roof when he got off the phone. He said, tell me why I shouldn't sack you right now on the spot. The young man looked at him and said, well, boss, it's like this. If I can lie for you, I can lie to you. And he went on to be the most trusted employee in the whole company. Solomon, who also wrote Proverbs in chapter 10, verse 9, says this. A man of integrity walks securely, but he who takes crooked paths will be found out. So there is security in walking in integrity. Integrity is a Latin word uh, from integer, and integer, it's a math term, and it means a whole, yeah? So in Christian terms, it means you're not divided. Your head and your heart are one in looking to glorify God with your life. So today, Solomon in Ecclesiastes 5, he's taking a walk through the temple. The temple that he built that was completed in 957 BC. And he's observing the integrity of the people as they wholeheartedly give their talk, their tasks, and their treasure to God. And all through this passage, you'll pick up this word, fool. Solomon speaks over and over again about fools. Fools in their steps, their sacrifice, their speech, and their spending. Fools don't have any integrity in the way that they live. By way of background, uh, Solomon in verse 1 says this, Guard your steps 
when you go to the house of God. Go near to listen rather than to offer a sacrifice of fools who do not know that they do wrong. Guard your steps. Watch your approach. Come with care. Have you ever seen the sign that says, caution, danger ahead? How many of you? What went through your mind before your feet went through the door this morning into the presence of God? Of course, we know that we can, as children of God, through the cross of Jesus Christ, who opens up the door so that we can come confidently into the presence of God, but we also need to come reverently, respectfully. You might be children of God, but if you've got children of your own, uh, children are to respect their parents, aren't they? And so we're to approach confidently because we are meeting in the presence of God. You know, there's a verse that says, take off your sandals because the place where you are standing is holy ground. The Almighty God is with us this morning. But of course, in the Old Testament, there was a temple where the people met with God. But today, in the New Testament, there is no temple as such. Now, we are the temple of God. God is to reside on the throne room of our hearts. And so God lives in us collectively, together. We make up the church 2 Corinthians 6, 16, for we, that's, the word, that's plural, we are the temple of the living God. You might look at it this way. In the Old Testament, God had a temple for his people, but in the New Testament, he has a people for his temple. And that is corporately and individually. In 2 Corinthians 6, verse 19 and 20, do you not know that your body, singular, is a temple of the Holy Spirit? And so God dwells in and he dwells with his people today. Takes us all the way back to the, the Garden of Eden, doesn't it? Adam and Eve, yes, they walked and they talked with God in paradise, but sin separated us. And it was only through the cross of Jesus Christ that paradise was restored so that now we can come back into the presence of God, yes, and we can walk and talk with him again. You know, in the, testament, in the temple, they used to have animal sacrifices, to pay for the sins of the people. But we know that Jesus Christ was the final Passover lamb who pays for our sins. And so today, we're not to die, we're to be living sacrifices for God. Paul says in Romans 12 verse 1, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. So a sacrifice of fools is when you come in to the house this morning with no heart for God where you've just gone through the motions of being here rather than understanding that God is to reside through Jesus Christ on the throne room of your lives. Now, you might not think like me that you've got much to offer God. But God doesn't want much. All he wants is what you've got. So often we look and go, oh, if I only had what these people have got. No, no, no. He just wants can you say this morning, 
This bod belongs to God. I'm going to give him everything I've got. The word actually here is the same word for someone who reserves a table at a restaurant. Yeah? If you put a reserved on that table, that table belongs to you. No one else can take that table from you. Nobody else can sit at that table. You have all the benefits of that table. In the same way, dedicating our body to the Lord means you put a reserve card on your life. It means that all of my time, all of my treasure, all of my talents, everything that God has given to me, I give it back to him to please him, which is my spiritual act of worship. I was thinking this morning, we always talk about the worship service. Not even something that uh, appears in the Bible, the worship service. Because we're not designed to operate on a weekly worship cycle but rather we are designed to run on a 24-7, 365 days of the year worship lifestyle. So now we've established integrity in our temple. Living sacrifices have integrity, firstly, in our talk, in the way that we talk. Of course, we're going to unpack it. If we are the temple, remember it's how we talk out of this temple to one another and how we talk with our God. Let's listen to what verses 2 and 3 say. Do not be quick with your mouth. Do not be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God. God is in heaven and you are on earth. Now that doesn't mean that God is so distant that he doesn't really care what's going on down here. It actually means that he is over everything. He watches everything closely. So let your words be few. As a dream comes when there are many cares, so the speech of a fool when there are many words. So the tongue, it always offers another caution. Slippery when wet. Sometimes you feel that saliva rolling around in your mouth and you're about to launch it. I went to the doctor a few months back. The doctor said to me, stick out your tongue. I said, that's a bit rude. He said, no, 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 stick out your tongue. Apparently, when they look in your tongue, this muscle in your mouth, they can tell a lot about your physical well-being. And the reality is, too, uh, God can tell a lot about the uh, condition of our spiritual life by how we manage our mouth. So Jesus taught that out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Jesus expressed to us the Freudian slip long before Freud ever existed. He said, what's inside of you is eventually going to come out of you. The longer you, babies, babies do a lot of crying, don't like that much. As they grow up, they do a lot of talking. Spend most of uh, our lives telling them to, uh, you know, grow up, talk and speak, and then the rest of their lives telling them to sit down and shut up. We all develop this big bag of words. We've all got this large vocabulary. The older we get, the bigger it is, isn't it? There's these words that are inside of us. And if you ever notice when suddenly life squeezes you, what is in you will come out of you. So my tongue mostly displays what I am. It directs where I go. It can destroy what I have, but mostly it displays who I am. James, 
He said more about the tongue than any other New Testament author. In chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. What that means is one, one word, one, one wrong word, can set off a chain reaction in someone's life. We know about the devastation that fires cause, don't we? But we also know that a fire can only burn as long as it has fuel. Yeah? But quite often fires will continue to smolder for a very, very long time. And you know, if you speak the wrong word into somebody, yeah, that word can burn in them for years and years and years. So the best thing, uh, before you speak, go with the carpenter's rule. The carpenter's rule is measure twice, cut once. Think about what you're going to say before it comes out of your mouth. Just as a careless camper can actually destroy an entire national park overnight, careless words from the uh, temple of God can cause permanent devastation in other people's lives. So with integrity, we've got to control what comes out of this temple. And so as we think about how we speak to others, we also need to think about how we communicate with God. And so in Matthew 6 verse 5, Jesus has some wisdom when we talk to God. He says, and when you pray, that's just speaking to God, okay? Don't be like the hypocrites. Hypocrites, you've heard me say before, back in the ancient world on the stage, they used to uh, uh, not have all the different uh, uh, people have different roles. They only had a few people on the stage doing all sorts of different roles. And what they would do is they would wear masks. And so they'd come over here and they'd say a few lines and then they'd go over here and they'd say a few more lines and then they'd grab another mask. And so they were pretending to be something they are not. That is what a hypocrite does. And Jesus says, don't be like the hypocrites who love to pray standing in the synagogue and on the street corners to be seen by men. Look at me, putting on a performance putting on a show. We call them soapbox prayers. If you've been in the church long enough, you've heard some people pray these prayers, yeah? Half the time, they're not even talking to God. They seem to have a message for other people who are in their presence as well. But the Lord's Prayer says this, Matthew 6, verse 7. And when you pray... Do not keep on babbling like the pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. John Bunyan said this, In prayer it is better to have a heart without words than words without a heart. And Jesus says in Luke 19, 46, My house will be called a house of prayer. Yes? So we're the temple of God. We meet together in prayer. It doesn't mean to say that we have to come in here every single Sunday and spend hours and hours and hours in prayer. Yes? It just means inside and out. As children of God, we pray every day. So we've got to show some integrity in our talk. When we talk up to God, when we talk out to others. Next, we've got to have integrity in our... Tasks. (laughs) I think somebody took something that somebody else didn't want them to take. (laughs) Or he didn't like that comment before about kids sitting down and being quiet, one of the two. (laughs) 
verses 4 through to 7. When you make a vow, a promise, a commitment to God, do not delay in fulfilling it. He has no pleasure in fools. Fulfill your vow. It is better not to vow than to make a vow and not fulfill it. Do not let your mouth lead you into sin. And do not protest to the temple messenger, my my vow was a mistake. Why should God be angry at what you say and destroy the work of your hands? Much dreaming. I love the way he always talks about dreaming, you know. I was thinking to myself this week, you know. He's in the temple. He's not in his castle. Tell him he's dreaming. I didn't think I'd have to actually say that bit of it. Goodness. Much dreaming and many words are meaningless. Therefore, stand in awe of God. So it's a serious thing to make a vow to God, isn't it? God don't like liars. That's absolutely sure. So those who say one thing and do another. But let me ask you this. When was the last time you stood in awe of God? When was the last time you were just completely overwhelmed with the awe and the majesty and the splendor of your God? You know, I think... uh, So often we're living down here in the natural, we've forgotten that we're actually supernatural beings just having an earthly experience. I think so often we're weighted down by the gravity of life. You know, the jobs we've got to do and the the bills we've got to pay. Uh, We've got cars that don't work. We've got uh, relationships that are breaking down as well. We've got family issues. We've got uh, trouble with... uh, 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 population and climate change and all these other things that seem to be affecting the way that people live. And so we've, we've lost that, that awe of God. You know, we're, we're so busy focusing in on how do we naturally solve our problems rather than speaking to a supernatural God who always has the answers. You know, if you're not in awe of God, I actually think you haven't visited the cross much lately. That is where the awe of God, the overwhelming power of God to save you from your sins, that you might be taken out of the miry clay and that you might be set back right in the presence of God. That is an overwhelming power from God. Mike Iaconelli, he writes this in Dangerous Wonder. How do we, how do we end up so comfortable with God? How did our awe of God get reduced to a lukewarm appreciation of God? How did God become a pal instead of a heart-stopping presence? How can we think of Jesus without remembering his ground-shaking, thunder-crashing, stormy exit on the cross? Why aren't we continually catching our breath and saying this is no ordinary God? You know, I think if there is one vow that is worth fulfilling, it is certainly the vow of getting back to the awe of God. I've got a wedding to do uh, in March, and I again think, and I quite often say to uh, a couple, you know, there's, there's lots of things. You have your wedding vows, don't you? And there's lots of things that people like to commit to in those wedding vows. But one thing that is absolutely non-negotiable is that your wedding vows are until death you do part. When you stand to be at a wedding, you are making that vow 
towards God. And the same is true if you are a confessing Christian. You have made a vow to make Jesus Christ the Lord and Saviour of your life every single day. So is the life that you are living right now matching the vow that you have made? Folks, Christians should be exhibiting such integrity that no one would ever question our vows. In Matthew 5, 33 and 37, Jesus said this, Again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, your vow, your commitment, but keep the oaths you have made to the Lord. Simply put, in the Old Testament, it was forbidden to make a false vow, a false promise in some way. He reads on and says, But I tell you, do not swear at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the the city of the great king. You see, uh, what the, uh, the Pharisees and the different religious leaders were doing was they were actually uh, making it a way for you not to fulfill your vow. You see, if you made a, a vow, oh, I make a vow under Jerusalem, well, that doesn't really count. You can get out of that. But if you made a vow under God's holy name, then God was in that vow and you had to fulfill it. And so it's really just a way of getting out of being truthful. It's like someone who makes some uh, sort of grandioso statement about their honesty and they say, it's honest, I swear on a stack of Bibles. I swear on my mother's life. I swear on my family's life. You're sort of making promises you can't keep, aren't you, in that. So a vow is simply committing to follow through on what you promised to do. I remember the vow that I made before God when Sharon and I got married. I I vowed to God to endeavour to the very best of my ability to get Sharon back to God in better condition than he gave her to me. Only Sharon can tell you what sort of job I am doing. (laughs) But Jesus, he sets the new standard. He intensifies everything, everything out of the old and into the new. Jesus always intensifies. He never lessens our responsibility uh, to cover it just with grace. No, no, no. There's always an increase in responsibility if you're going to live in the kingdom of God. He simply says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. You've noticed too that people try to convince you, don't they? You know, And the more they try to convince you, the more you think... Well, maybe they've told me a lie before. Maybe they're sort of saying, hey, listen, you can trust me this time, but you can't trust me every time. But Jesus says, if you're a person of integrity, then your word is enough. So simply put, integrity is doing what you said you would do. So ask yourself the question, is my Christian life characterized by integrity in what I do? Finally, we're going to look as Solomon saw the integrity of our treasure, point three this morning. Solomon was the richest man who ever lived. Some people sort of say he was so rich that he he, he outdoes the the modern um, uh, uh, men of today. What's that guy who's got the electric cars? Elon Musk. You know, Elon Musk looked like a pauper. Verse 10 and 11, whoever loves money never has money enough. 
Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with his income. This too is meaningless. Who here considers themselves rich? There's about four of us. Fidelity Investments, they surveyed 1,012 millionaires. The result was that 46% of them that participated don't feel wealthy and are worried about their financial future. On average of the 1,012, uh, the average wealth was $3.5 million. When asked, how much do you think you would need to be wealthy to feel financially secure, they said it would be 7 $0.5 million. So ask yourself, are you wealthy? It's an interesting way to gauge it. I think if we think about biblically, the Bible says that if you have got two pairs of clothes, one to wear today and one to change in case you got them dirty, and enough food for today, you are considered rich. We know that we are of the top 8% richest people on the planet. And we know that the Bible speaks more about money, greed, wealth than any other subject. God speaks 500 times on love, but 2,000 times on what we do with our money. In the Gospels... Jesus, one in every 10 verses, 288 in total, talks about some form of money and giving. And he only talks positively about it when we are actually giving it away. And yet, on average, people believe that they need about 20 to 40% more money than they presently have to be happy. You see, we've bought in on this idea that money buys happiness. But the problem is, your yearning power, what you yearn for, is never going to be as great as your earning power. And even if you are in that sort of sphere, you know, I remember quoting Bill Gates when he was the, uh, the, the richest man on the planet. And he made this uh, quote where it said something along the lines of, $640 million should be more than enough for anybody to live a lifetime. How much is he worth today? Enough is never enough. Of course, remember, Solomon is in the temple, yeah? And he's watching people put the money in the uh, offering. We, we do it, uh, you know, some churches have a plate that goes around. Some churches pass a bag. Uh, we've got a, a, a box uh, that you are free to put your offerings in uh, when you come into the chapel. But of course, more and more and more today, giving is done online by direct debit. But this is the sort of boxes that they had, all the way back from when Solomon built his temple, all the way to that day when Jesus was watching uh, the rich and others put their money in. It's the sort of a shape of a trumpet like that, yeah? Uh, and you can see there those ones in the temple wall, they go back through into a box. Back in the day, there was only coins, yeah? And so uh, it hit that trumpet, that, that metal sound. And so what they would do, actually, it was a bit like a spectator sport, really. It was in the women's court so that everybody could give an offering, because there were certain places back then that women couldn't go, you understand? And so what they would do is the rich would come in with great big handfuls of money. 
And then they would wait for a big crowd to show up. And then, it would let go this great big noise. And it would be like, look at me, look at me, look at me. And it's actually where we get that saying, to blow your own trumpet. But enough's never enough, is it? Enough is never enough. Reading on, it says, As goods increase, so do those who consume them. And what benefit are they to the owner except to feast his eyes on them? So the more money you have, the more people want a piece of it. Yeah? I don't know anybody who likes to get more money from their wages without complaining that the tax office has got their hand out. The more we earn, the more we have to pay. Whenever you look at the rich and famous, they've always got these huge entourages of people that they're paying hand over fist. And so this morning, God just simply has us have a look at when we stand in awe, how do we use the resources that God has given for his kingdom? We quite often think that wealth's going to bring satisfaction, significance, security. But as your income goes up, so do your expenses, yeah? The more you have, the more it costs, doesn't it, you know? I don't know, I've only got one house and that's enough for me. Some people have got two and three and four houses. They're going to cost you a lot more, isn't it? You know, if you've ever looked over your neighbour's fence and they've got this beautiful lawn, it's just magnificent. You look back at yours and think, oh, it's a bit of dirt, a few, a few bits of grass. The only difference is their water bill. <laughs> it's going to cost you more to have more. Verse 12, the sleep of a labourer is sweet, whether he eats little or much, but the abundance of a rich man permits him no sleep. See, the rich are thinking, well, how do I save this? How do I protect it? How do I look after my investment? One guy punches the clock, yeah, comes home, puts his feet up, I don't know, has a few beers, watches the TV, goes to bed, sleeps like a baby. The other guy, he's up all night, fretting and fuming and tossing and turning. Insomnia increases with his income. We're in a real dangerous world these days, aren't they? And, uh, you know... I, I thought to myself this morning, actually, I thought, uh, you know, the more you've got, the more you're worried about it, and the more people these days are just waiting on the next home invasion, aren't they? So people can take your BMW, so people can steal what you've got. It's dangerous stuff. In Romans, they have a, a proverb, money is like seawater. The more you drink, the thirstier you become. Verse 13 and 14. I have seen a grievous evil under the sun. Wealth hoarded to the harm of its owners or wealth lost through some misfortune so that when they have children, there is nothing uh, left for them to inherit. You've heard me say before, money's like manure. You've got to spread it around or it starts to stink up your life. Do you know, per head of population, we have more storage units than anywhere else in the world. To hoard all of our stuff. Hey, uh, trappers in North Africa, they have a unique way of, of trapping monkeys. And what they do basically is they get a, a container. In the back of the container, they put nuts in and seal it up. And in the front of the container, there's a very, very thin opening. And the monkey just can't resist the nuts. So it's attracted and enticed and it puts its little hand in there. 
up. And it gets the nuts. And as soon as it's holding on to the nuts, it can't pull its hand back out. And it's trapped. And it doesn't have the good common sense just to let go of what is eventually going to trap it. And I think that's a good picture of greed and how it works in the Christian life. The devil's crafty, isn't he? The devil knows what's in your heart. He knows what will attract you. might be different to what will attract me. But he knows how to entice us. He knows how, that we want it. He knows that we want to hold on to it. He knows that we want to hoard it. And when we do that, it will capture us. And we haven't got the good sense just to let it go. But where did we end up? Finish today with Ecclesiastes 5.15. Naked a man, and I think maybe a woman too, I'm not sure, <laughs> comes from his mother's womb. And as he comes, so he departs. He takes nothing from his labour that he can carry in his hand. That's great, isn't it? You come with nothing and you are going out of here with nothing. You know, the, uh, the pyramids, they're just great big tombs, aren't they? The pharaohs, they want to be buried in these vaults with all of their treasures, all their gold, all their riches, thinking they're going to take it to the next life. And then a few years later, in come the grave robbers and take the whole lot. No one gets out of here with anything. You know, I've... Uh, uh, done a, a lot of funerals in my time, and uh, the coffin goes into the ground, the ground goes over the top of the coffin, and the next day, someone else is sitting in that person's house, in that person's chair, eating that person's food, driving that person's car, and spending that person's money. That person can take nothing out of this world. And that's why in Matthew 6, 19, Jesus says, Do not store up for yourself treasure on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourself treasure in heaven. You know, uh, real estate people will say the number one thing in real estate, location, location, location. And the reality is, wherever you have your treasure stored, that is where your heart will be also, and so in Luke 12, Jesus gave a parable about a farmer, a good man, a hard-working man, didn't cheat, didn't steal, didn't lie, uh, uh, worked hard to get his riches by the sweat of his brow. Eventually, his diligence paid off, if you know the story, massive crop production, and he decided, right, and he stayed up all night to design the barns that he would need in order to store all of this stuff for all of his life. And then later that night, there was a knock at the door. Who is it? It is I, death. I've come for you. Ten, nine, eight. Go away, go away, death. Nobody told me you were coming. You've been told your whole life. Seven, six, five. Oh, 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 I'll give you half of everything I've got. Four, three, two. Oh, oh, I'll give you it all. I'll give it all. One, zero. And God 
wrote on the tombstone of his temple, fool. Jesus said in Luke 12, 20, you fool, don't you realize that tonight your very soul is going to be required of you? One of my favorite quotes. Uh, Before Jim Elliot was killed by the Orcas Indians in Ecuador, he wrote in his journal, he is no fool to give up that which he cannot keep in order to gain that which he can never lose. So with our temple, our quest for integrity is shown in the way we talk, in our tasks and in our treasure. And so now we come together to the communion table. If you've uh, got your cups there, you'd like to prepare them. We're staying in the temple. Thanks, Daniel. In Luke 21, Jesus was in the temple. And he was watching people put their money in to the offering trumpets. And it says he looked up and he saw the rich putting their gifts in to the temple treasury. But he also saw a poor widow put in two very small copper coins. I tell you the truth, this poor widow has put in more than all the others. These two copper coins, remember we talked before about the big show? These were just simply placed in the end of the trumpet. They were called leptus. They were thin ones. It describes the lowest denomination of coin ever struck by a nation in history. And Jesus went on and he said, all these people gave their gifts out of their wealth, but she put in out of her poverty all that she had to live on. You see, Jesus honours our giving. He knows what we give. He knows the motive of our heart to give. He knows uh, what it costs us to give. He knows uh, whether we give wholeheartedly with integrity behind our giving. And he honoured this widow because he knew the depth of her sacrifice. He watched her drop it into the box and he knew in just 72 hours he's going to be nailed to the cross. He's going to be suspended between heaven and earth. And he took the value of his life and he paid the highest cost, depositing it in heaven for us. It's safe in the treasury of heaven. What do we say? It's all about location, location, location. He wasn't a fool to sacrifice his life. His sacrifice forced him to trust God completely, didn't it? And that's what God's asking of you today. Do you trust me? Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. What is it today that God might be asking you What vow have you made to God in the past uh, that you haven't fulfilled on, that he might be wanting you to put in his hands today? Today, we come. Christ knows our commitment. He knows our circumstances. And he knows the cost that we are willing to pay. 
as you take the bread in your hand now, we eat remembering that Jesus Christ paid the sacrifice for us. He died once for all so that we by our body might always be a living sacrifice. As you eat, I'll give you a moment to pray in the quietness and stillness of your own heart. Would you please stand? We cannot, in all good faith, drink of the cup that represents the blood of Jesus that was shed on the cross for us without understanding the vow, the oath, the commitment we have made to make Jesus Christ Lord of our Saviour 24-7, 365 days of the year. To live with integrity in our talk, our tasks and our treasure. If you stand in awe of God today, you will fulfil your vow. Let's drink together. Those cups will be collected now as uh, 